you can kind of fall prey to that bait and switch to the homeless man that's got his thumb up and he's hitchhiking on the side of the road. What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. We're here again. It's been a couple weeks, I know, but uh, I'm back, joined by Martin Grossman, my co-host. How you doing, Martin? The goose is loose, William. The goose is loose. I'm doing okay. Uh, it's been a little while since we've hung out here and, and, and talked about a little bit of football, but I'm... Definitely eager to to dive into today's episode. We've got quite the intriguing topic, especially given the fact that we just watched uh, the Germany, Portugal, Hungary, uh, France kind of, I don't even know what to call it, just like the this mismatch of, of you know, teams switching spots in the table every single minute. Um, I think that brings some interesting context, but the the topic of discussion today is going to be super interesting. I'm very eager to hear from you and what you kind of think. Yeah, Mar- Martin kind of hinted at the topic by um, starting off his portion of the episode by just repeating the goose is loose two <laughs> times. Um, but, you know, it should be obvious uh, from that what this is about. But if you're a little bit slow, you're not keeping up, I'll, <laughs> I'll explain it for you. Um, we're going to be talking about Robin Gosens today, um, or the goose, the goose, as Martin has dubbed him. Uh, he was a very interesting player. He kind of burst onto the scene with Germany recently. He burst on the scene with Atalanta a couple of years ago, but it seems like uh, last week his performance against Portugal was kind of the first time that people around the world were kind of standing up and taking notice of him for the first time. So right. b- before we get into that, um, Martin, I know you've had quite a week with some of your touchline theory stuff uh separate to this podcast so you want to talk about that for a little bit yeah so um about a week ago i i had kind of finally finished like working on this piece on positional play uh also known as juego de posicion it's a topic that like a lot of people frequently talk about i think on football twitter and just in general in the tactics space and a lot of people have a lot of opinions um, about this kind of philosophy of playing football. Um, and and I think that a lot of those opinions are often kind of misconstrued or mangled in one way or another. And so what I kind of sought out to do, obviously, this is something that has a lot of pre-existing literature already out there. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that if I was going to write something about something that was so prominent, that it was actually going to be like a legitimate contribution to that, to that space. And mm-hmm. so I, I basically made what I called the practical guide to actually understanding positional play, which I think is quite a, maybe quite an arrogant snooty title. Well, that's pretty in line with your brand. I think. (laughs) Yeah. We had a conversation earlier about how I'm a really big fan of snooty people, huh? Didn't we? Mm -hmm. Um, But basically like what I really wanted to do here was, was take a topic that I saw again, like you see so many people on Twitter that have like in their bios, like positional play or like, you know, their, their handle on Twitter is like, you know, positional play. And it seems a little bit like farcical. So I really wanted to dive into it and kind of try to understand even for myself, you know, a lot of times I feel as though when I write, I never know anything until I actually start to write. And so I really wanted to dive into it and see if I could get to the bottom of this like concept and really understand it and explain it in a way that was very intuitive. Um, 
And so I, I spent some time working on that. It ended up being 11,000 words, which is also, I guess, probably on brand for Touchline Theory and for my writing style in general. Um, but I was I was really delighted by the response that it got. Yeah, so I, I, I was super, super excited to see how well-received it was on on Twitter. Um, our, our numbers for not only the podcast, but like specifically the blog itself have totally skyrocketed since that piece came out. And, and mind you, this was in the aftermath of my Twitter, my first Twitter account getting absolutely, you know, banned to the shadow realm for my copyright violation on the half spaces video for for the Chelsea and Man City game. Yeah, it's a it's a um, great way to come back from that. Yeah, that's basically what it was. Like I got that thing banned and I was really frustrated and trying to figure out all this stuff and all these emails from Twitter saying like, you know, I should hire a lawyer. And I was like, all right, I, I don't really know what to do about this. So I really I tried to channel my energy into this. And then yeah, so we got an incredible response. We went from having you know, th this blog is very much an exploration thing for me. This podcast is an exploration thing for us. I mean, I, I think what's what's interesting is like we were getting a very, you know, standard, unimpressive like number of viewers and to the blog every day or reads. And like in the last week, we've had 5,000 views of that of that specific piece. We've had over two and a half thousand unique visitors from people all around the world Um read this article that I honestly, you know, especially a year ago today when I was just thinking about starting all of this would never have expected to happen. So um, very, very delighted and also honored by a lot of the the praise that the piece has gotten. And, you know, I hope that we can kind of continue to keep putting stuff out like that. So I know you will or are maybe working on something quietly too to follow it up. I'm, I'm excited for that as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it very quietly and I don't want to say too much about it here, but um you might expect my own contribution to the blog uh, within the next week or so if things go well. <laughs> so. Good, good. A debut that I'm looking forward to. We'll see. But uh, yeah, like Martin said, um, pretty pretty huge week. I'm very happy for you as well. And um, uh, because of the way this works, I'm going to assume that pretty much anyone who might be listening to this has already read the piece because the blog is kind of exploding popularity beyond the podcast here. But if by any chance you haven't, uh, you have a free afternoon, check it out. It's really interesting stuff. Well written. I can uh, highly recommend, but let's, Thanks, man. let's uh, move on from that. And uh, myself in the last week, instead of releasing stuff, I've actually been on vacation in yes. Colorado, um, which has been great. But one of the kind of downsides of this is I've been up hiking early every morning, uh, pretty much like until 12, one o'clock. So I've missed almost all of the Euro games so far. Some some incredible pictures, though, that you sent me. That was crazy. What specifically, what area were you in specifically? Uh, I was up in Rocky Mountain National Park. I was staying uh, at Estes Park, which is okay. you know, a little small town, kind of tourist destination for this kind of thing outside there. So it was good. Just uh, hiked around a lot of different places, spent a week, and uh, yeah, back in town, feeling a bit recharged. Well, restorative, I'm sure, after you had some pretty packed schedule with the teams that you're working with as well. So yeah. hopefully you're back into it. And maybe, you know, we talked about fixture fatigue for the players back in episode one on the Super League. I think also like viewer fatigue has been something that a lot of people have been suffering with these group stages too, where there's just like Copa America and the Euros and we just finished club seasons. Like it's just overwhelming. So maybe you'll be ready to go for the knockouts. Yeah, I'm feeling very excited. And uh, yeah, a couple of standout knockout fixtures. Uh, Germany, England, which just got finalized a few minutes ago, is a big one. I'm really looking forward yeah. to that. I think that's going to be a fascinating wow. game. But uh, 
yeah, let's uh, get into it here and talk about Germany, who are kind of the, the goose central focus of this episode. And yeah, uh, Germany, you know, if you haven't been keeping up with their Euros, kind of started the game against France in the first one with this five of the back formation, which we hadn't really seen all that much from Germany before. And it didn't work great. Uh, they lost and, you know, never really looked like they had much of a huge shot of winning against France. And a lot of people are very negative again about this five at the back, but I was not one of those people. I was really kind of excited to see this and I saw what they were going for. And I think everyone then kind of saw what they were going for in the match against Portugal when the five at the back was crucial to what they did. And this one player specifically, Robin Gosens, was just incredible. I think I would say probably the best individual performance of the tournament so far based off what I've seen, which is admittedly not a ton. I think that the only competition for that might be players that we'll talk about in the second half of the episode that have very much emulated the role that he played within that German system. So, yeah. All right. Um, but yeah, just uh, Martin, do you want to just give a little bit of a detail on like what exactly Gosens did in this game and kind of you know, why this is such an incredible performance? Yeah, so high level, um, off the top of my head, right? So Germany basically played with Serge Gnabry up top, who is a player that I think, I haven't watched a ton of Bayern after they traumatized me in the 8-2, but is a player that historically I've seen played much more out wide. So it's a little bit of a weird kind of selection to start things off, especially when you have guys like Timo Werner and Kai Havertz and other players that realistically you could put up there. But you've yeah. got... Serge Gnabry up at the nine, and then behind him, you have Kai Havertz and Thomas Muller. Um, Thomas Muller is known as like the Raumdeuter. I, I might be butchering that pronunciation, but he's kind of this, you know, the space creator, the space interpreter. He's he's this very fascinating, like kind of one of a kind piece to put into that puzzle. Mm -hmm. But him and Kai Havertz very much play this sort of like 10, false nine, can drift wide role, somewhat creative, somewhat being more as like the target uh, in certain patterns of play. But the fact of the matter is they're all very central. Mm -hmm. um, you've got you've got Nabry that like, you know, nominally might be down the middle and then perhaps Havertz and Muller in the half spaces, but they kind of alternate a little bit and they'll switch around and they'll, they'll kind of occupy those three middle strips of the field. Um, yeah. and so then kind of speaking to what you said, I'm just going to talk about what effect, what it was effectively the front five. Th then you have, uh, Joshua Kimmich, who's playing this like right midfield, right wing back role, um, which was something that brought a lot of, I think, jeers from the general fan when they saw that he wasn't going to be played in the midfield alongside say Leon Goretzka to emulate the Bayern midfield setup that's done so well in the past couple of years. Yeah. Instead, instead it's been. Gundogan and Cruz, and there's just a little bit of a difference in terms of the energy that those two pairings provide you. Um, but there is, but um, I mean, I, I think what what kind of works towards Kimmich playing it right back, and what I think also works towards just this formation in general and playing Ghost into the left back is that Germany have a lot of good options in midfield. They do not have very many good wide back options. And it's like if you put Kimmich. Yeah as a center midfielder, then the question becomes, who do you play at the right back? And that's not a very easy question to answer right now, I don't think. Yeah, honestly, I'm not even quite sure what their depth chart looks like at that position, yeah. to be totally honest with you. But you're right. The, 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 the final component of that kind of like front five in a weird way is this is Gozens, is this guy that's playing the equivalent role that Kimmich is playing on the opposite side of the field, but also with entirely different instructions. 
effectively, yes. right? So, so Kimmich is is a lot more involved in the in the patterns of play. He will often be the one that switches the field, while Gosens will be the one that receives the ball for the switch. Mm-hmm. And and that in and of itself was like the epitome of Germany's approach to this match. And and we'll get into this more in the second half and to more of maybe like the, the tactical and the strategic uh, underpinnings of what really happened here. But the idea is Portugal played with a back four and they couldn't handle it. They couldn't figure out what to do. Um, they had wingers that didn't really play defensive roles. They had two sixes in William Carvalho and Danilo Pereira that are kind of the same player. They're very dissimilar. Yeah. And and basically (laughs) congested a part of the field that perhaps wasn't what Germany eventually looked to threaten. So we'll we'll dive into Mm. all this in greater detail, but I think that's kind of the high level where you have a lot of central focus and attack, a lot of you know, I've talked in certain pieces on touchline theory about this concept of gravity or magnetism mm-hmm. where like objects of value on the field have this kind of luring force on people that are threatened by them. And so like, if you have the ball in a certain region, a defender will be drawn towards you because of that. And so this idea that like, you can really manipulate the opponent by moving the ball or moving players in certain spaces. What what happened here was you had these three guys in the center that drew so much attention centrally and left an entire just acres and acres of space for Gosens on the far side. Yeah, and it didn't really end up being those central players that caused the damage. It was Gosens. And like you said, just the whole match, Portugal seemed to have absolutely no answer for this. And this started, um, I think it was like five minutes in, Gosens scored what would have been an incredible goal. It was a right. kind of weird acrobatic sideways volley at the near post. Um, it was disallowed, but that was kind of the first warning shot, I guess, that something was wrong because he just, oh, yeah. he was completely unmarked in space in the box. And, you know, if Nabry holds his run for half a second more, that's uh, one nil. Well, and what's crazy is like, even with that specific moment, he did not change what he did for the rest of the game. He, nope. That exact thing that he did in that first like five minutes, that disallowed goal, he just kept doing it. And eventually it just started to work. The floodgates burst open. Yeah, and it eventually worked. Um, I think it was 35th minute, 37th, something like that. Uh, Very, very similar position. Very similar cross all the way across the box. Gosen's just completely unmarked and fires a first-time volley in. It hits off Ruben Diaz, own goal. And that's the first one. And it didn't stop there. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think that specific goal was something that we'll probably chat a little bit about in the second half, too. There were some really interesting things that Germany did, but fundamentally, it's it's that central overloading thing where there's a lot of conversation, I think, about, like, superiorities and and inferiorities in football and this idea that, like, you, you want to be numbers up. And if you have a situation in which your number's up, it might be advantageous to, to take those opportunities. And that's a, a debate that I've had with plenty of people, whether that's like an empirical truth or not. But the fact of the matter is, if you have three players in in an area and there's two defenders, then that might be, you know, a, a solid opportunity. But what ended up kind of happening here was like Germany very much wanted to attract a lot of attention in an area that they just totally circumvented every single time they played the ball from the right-hand side of the field to the left-hand side. It wasn't like they were trying to overload the, the center of the park so that they could cross into that. They were overloading the center so that all the defenders would worry about that region, and then they themselves would bypass it completely. Yep. 
And it's very clever. A little bait and switch. Or mm-hmm. Like that. And um, yeah, it, it would work many more times. So the, the th- second goal, I guess, is kind of the outlier in this. It's not quite the exact same thing, but it still does involve Gosens. He's not receiving a ball from the other side of the field this time. He's uh, just receiving kind of a through ball down the channel from someone and then cuts it back to Thomas Mueller, who's inside the box. Mueller sends a cross in. Uh, it kind of bounces around a few times. Portugal fails to clear it. And eventually it's another own goal from, uh, I think, Guerrero this time on the second one. Yep. Yep. yep you're right. And that brought us into halftime. And then the first 15 minutes of the second half, I mean, it was just these these kind of chances just started coming at greater, greater frequency. Uh, the third goal for Germany was, again, a very similar situation to the first one. Have, or he's, Gosens is just completely free in space, inside the box. He's found with a crossfield ball, uh, hits it first time. Kai Havertz is there to finish it in. And then again, 4-1. Gosens just pops up completely unmarked at the back post and instead of squaring it, finally heads one of them in himself. And, you know, Yagula finally showed a bit of mercy and just subbed Gosens off in the 60th minute. And that must have been <laughs> such an incredible moment for the Portuguese defenders because, you know, as we said, they just had no idea how to deal with him. And, you know, eventually he was just taken off and it wasn't a problem. I mean, what's what's pretty fascinating, right, about that that third goal in particular? Um, I have a screenshot that I took from the like the YouTube highlight clips um, to refresh my memory that I watched before recording, and the time at which Mueller plays that pass, it's baffling. So so Pepe is very often this guy that's like aggressive, comes off his line and looks to press centrally. And you can expect that Pepe is going to try to get physical with Havertz and and Mueller and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so Pepe, you can kind of see, is pulling up. In that moment. And, and Diaz is kind of closing this lane into Havertz, who's running in behind. Semedo is so occupied with, with Serge Gnabry's run, like, again, towards the ball, diagonally, deep into space, but towards the ball, that Muller has the ball, like, basically inside the, the top of the, the, the circle of the 18-yard box. And Semedo is, he's on the right-hand, so Muller's on the right-hand side. Semedo is on the right-hand side of the penalty spot in this moment and you see nobody remotely close to Gosens who's starting at the opposite corner of the 18 yard box. So is with his entire back line shifted to one side of the penalty spot. And, and so I think that like the crazy thing here was just like the starkness of some of these moments where it's not like, Oh, they just kept finding the fullback and he kept playing balls in. It was like, why on earth is there this much room and how is he doing this so consistently? Yeah. And it's, I mean, like you said, it's striking. I mean, cause like I said, with the exception of the goal for the two one in which Gosens was still incredibly advanced when he got the ball and still cut it back quickly to Muller. I mean, all of these four things have some things in common. And that's first that Gosens is getting the ball like well inside the 18 yard box on all of these plays. Yeah which is pretty rare for a fullback to do. But what, what's even more striking is, like you said, he's completely unmarked every single time. There's never everyone even close to him, you know, inside the box. And I, I, I can't think of another game where I was seeing that this consistently, that, that some one player was able to find this one space inside, you know, this dangerous an area, and just no one was able to cover him at all. And another thing that all these scenarios had in common, which is something that's made more specific to Gosens than 
this role and something we can talk about a bit more later is that Gosens does not take any time on the ball on any of these. He hits every single one of these opportunities first touch. He doesn't dawdle at all. And he just goes right away. And I think that makes him a lot more dangerous than he would otherwise be. Yeah, but we can maybe talk more about why that is in the second half. Um, yeah, I think one of the really impressive things, right? This guy plays, he he is a defender. Like, yeah. typically, this guy is a defender. And I think this winger role is often, like, you know, we see skill attributed to players in these positions often kind of like linked to ball skill and, and, and flair and, and other things that are more kind of uh, stereotypically technical, if you will. This guy, in order to do the things that he was doing, you can ask any football player whatsoever, like to be able to play balls across, fizz them across the face of a back line, first touch from a cross field switch, First off, requires fantastic positional awareness to time where you're going to be to hit that first time. Mm -hmm. The technique involved in that is absurd to actually deliver something that's threatening without settling the ball first. Like he scores a header, right? The guy's a the guy's a beefy dude. He's a robust defender. Like throughout oh, yeah. the match, he's he's making tackles too, right? And so I think what's fascinating is just this this profile of this player that. You know, a lot of these things are less glamorous, I think, for the average fan. It's not, you know, like some tricky winger dropping a guy, breaking ankles. It's a first-time ball, but it's played with such ruthlessness that it's so, so difficult to take care of. And, like, I think I think TIFO Football might have actually put out a video recently. I don't exactly remember specifically what it's called. But it was, like, talking about this Bermuda Triangle area for defenses. And it's like that gap between your back line and the six, when you play a ball firmly, basically targeting the back post hmm. that any remote contact by a defender, they're terrified. Cause like a lot of those ends up as own goals, right? Like there's yeah. a goal, something similar to that that happened today versus Slovakia for Spain, where Pau Torres headed the ball and it hit the Slovakian defender and it went in like Guerrero smashed the ball into his own net. Diaz hit the ball into his own net. Like, that, that is a threatening place to put the ball, and he was doing that just with such panache, such, like, effectiveness, that it's just, like, an entirely different realm of technique that we're talking about for a wide player. Yeah, uh, Gosens is not uh, really a traditional anything. He, he is a very unique player. He completely breaks uh, pretty much any mold of an attacking or defensive fullback that you've seen before. And, you know, this is something that maybe people will start to realize now that he's burst on, but I'm... Actually, someone who's been watching Gosens for a couple of years. I'm a, you know, Atalanta are not a team. I guess I would say I support maybe, but uh, they're one that I really like. I love the way they play, and I've watched a lot of their games in the league over the past two seasons. And Robin Gosens is actually someone who um, really stuck out to me from the start, and actually inspired uh, the formation I used with my own team that I coach this year because I just love the way he did things. I love the way he was used on the field, and he was a player that no one really seemed to have an easy answer for. Yeah. Tell me more a little bit about that, just real quick. I know we have details we want to get to maybe about Ghost specifically, but like how how did he kind of morph the way that you saw how you wanted to implement things in your team? Like how'd you take after kind of his style? I'm curious. It's just he's <sighs> Gerson's is like the perfect like extra man in attack. He's not really 
part of the attack for most of the game. But then right at the end, you know, he just provides this one extra little bit, this one ball in the right position. And, you know, he he's kind of someone that goes under the radar for most of the game because of the position that he starts in and because of the way that he plays, which is maybe not the most flashy, most skilled way. But then right. in the right moments, you know, having that one player kind of tied to the wing who can just drift and field at exactly the right time to provide an extra man. I mean, it, it can just be devastating. Yeah, he's kind of like a jack in the box. I don't know how to even describe it. Like his whole thing is you wind it up, you wind it up, you wind it up. And then suddenly he just comes in out of from nowhere and that's really the challenge that portugal had to face yeah no that's yeah. very interesting so um i, I just want to finish this half by giving a bit of uh detail on gosen specifically as a player and kind of what he does because we kind of hinted at some of the things that he does but i just want to paint a clearer picture perhaps before we finish so gosen's for pretty much 95 percent of the game is completely locked to the left flank and uh, we, mm-hmm. we talked about he starts as a left wing back, but I mean, even compared to most other left wing backs, he is not coming on field very much. If you pause the game at any point, I mean, it would be pretty shocking if he's like inside kind of the wide barrier of the 18 yard box. He's, he's between that and the touchline almost the entire time. But the one uh, area of the field where this is not true is right at the very end. You know, he does not mm-hmm. really make diagonal runs in field, but what Gosens will do is once he gets very, very advanced and is kind of hanging out in the space kind of beyond the 18-yard box, but still wide of the 18-yard box, he'll make a horizontal run straight infield into kind of these dangerous positions that he ends up getting the ball in so much against Germany. And so his, his kind of heat map for a game, I guess, is pretty much just a straight line with one tiny little inroad into the field in the opponent's 18-yard box, which is a very unusual heat map. It's not one that many players uh, kind of would have. And Gosens is a very interesting player, as I said, very unique. And we've looked at these FB ref kind of percentile charts before on this podcast a couple of times, kind of compare players and see like where their strengths and weaknesses are against other people in the same position. So against fullbacks, it's very clear to see where Robin Gosen's strengths are. His strengths are goals, assists, progressive passes made, progressive passes received, and touches in the opponent's box. These are all things he's like well above the 94th percentile in. He's in the top 5% of fullbacks for how he does these. And for a lot of those, it's 99th. Goals especially, touches in the opponent's box, gets more than almost any other fullback in the world. And you know the, the rest of his chart is pretty boring. To be honest, it's pretty average. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm serious. In terms right. of defender, in terms of defensive statistics, he's he's almost middle of the road for everything. And I think that's something to stress. Like Gosens is, you know, by no means a bad defender, but he's not an elite one either. This this attacking part of the game is clearly where he's strongest, but he is solid enough defensively that he can get away with this. Um I think he's also physically built and industrious enough to make up for whatever shortcomings he might have in his defensive perception indeed yeah. by by being intense in that part of the field well for, for a lot for of the players for 60 minutes at least he can do it and then uh, exactly. he has to get subbed off <laughs> that's what Mueller said yeah. he? he made some sort of comment i mean yeah. but but you, you know what i mean right like like a lot of the players that are playing further up the field um in those wide regions that are coming up against him a lot of the time those fullbacks there's so many different profiles that you see in those roles and like we were just commenting when uh luca dean just got injured and pulled off for France like who was going to come on and be the left back for France and I, I suggested Rabio, and you had said um 
like I don't know Pavard and then to bring Kunde over to the left like yeah. these fullback positions we, we were even just talking about this like I suggested Rabi and I said something to the effect of like yeah he's got the build for it and you were like I mean, he's supposed to be a fullback like fullbacks are some of the smallest people in the field and you're <laughs> totally right like that but but the fact of the matter is these these wide defensive roles have kind of seen a bit of a renaissance in terms of the just ranging physic physical attributes that people try to plug in there like you see so many different varieties of player uh, while you see like jose gaia who's like very small but like incredibly defensively skilled yeah and then you see like i mean i'm yeah, trying to Theo think of, hernandez would probably be the polar opposite sure as a guy yeah if you're looking at that kind of thing yeah and and so what's interesting is like in this fullback role like he there are ways to make up for certain shortcomings and like gosens in being as relentless as he is like he's a he's not a not intimidating guy like he he is built well he makes when he makes a tackle he makes a tackle like and the, sometimes that's enough when you're playing against mm. a guy that's maybe smaller and trickier, like Bernardo Silva in this game, that might be all you need to dispossess him a couple of times. Yeah, he's, he's a scary guy to be going up against 1v1. And because of kind of the nature of the way that he plays, he does end up going 1v1 against wingers pretty much every time. Because as we said, he is he is locked to this left flank. He is never coming inside to deal with other threats. He will normally be up against one player for the entire match. Yep. Um, but just finishing this kind of percentile chart then, I've laid out a picture of Robin Gosens as a left back who is at least average in everything and has a few offensive production uh, kind of statistics that he is just well above anyone else in the world in. But having said that, there is one offensive area where he's very bad, well below average in the bottom third of players. And that's hmm. dribbling, which is something that we kind of hinted at earlier, is that you know, he's he's not this traditional, like, skilled fullback who's going to huh. dribble past people. He he barely dribbles at all, actually. He's yeah. he's kind of like a, like a progressive pass, crossing, scoring, one-trick pony, almost, in that sense. Where, like, as the winger, he doesn't really have the, the, the traditional skill set required for that position, but he has these specific things. Maybe not a one-trick pony, yeah, but you, it just you, reminds you me of really that conversation. List, you can't list out three things and call him a three-thing one-trick pony, but uh, yeah, okay. I, I see what you're saying. He but, he's, he's a fairly predictable player in a lot of ways. Well, think, he's, he's never going to do some stuff on the ball that really surprises you. If he gets it, he's going to move it on fairly quickly most of the time. I mean, what's apparent is like as a player who's playing these wide roles, maybe it's almost like by necessity, by virtue of not being that really talented, tricky dribbler who gets past players on the run. Maybe he's had to adapt his game to this kind of one touch, incisive pass, incisive shot style and has suddenly kind of emerged as like one of the leaders in world football, certainly in this tournament and clearly for Germany at doing that very specific thing. We're like, this game, like we said, he receives the ball, he plays it right back across. The balls he plays are fantastic. They're hit with power. He'll finish with a far post, but he does it all with one touch. I don't even know his his touch count for this match, but it must not have been that high. He just receives the ball and then moves it, which I think yep. is fascinating. And so. he's good enough at putting himself in uh, positions where he's unmarked that he's able to do this. You know, Even if he's yep. not the most technically brilliant, he always has the time and space to do what he needs to do. And it's been incredibly effective. So bear in mind, when I read these stats, Robin Gosens is a defender. But over the last two seasons, he has racked up 22 goals and 15 assists for Atalanta. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Out of the back. Remind, 
Reminds me of some Merseyside players, William. Uh, in, in terms of assists, he's a little bit behind them. But in terms of goals, I, I, I don't think there's another defender in the world who is anywhere near these numbers. I mean, this is absurd. Yeah, insane. 11 goals a season as a defender. That's better than some team's strikers. It's better than Liverpool's striker. <laughs> yeah, that's like... I mean, that's, I think, I don't know how I'm going to butcher this and I'm not, I'm going to forget the specific stats, but like, I feel like that sounds better than Danny Alves's production, Marcelo's production back even when they were in their primes. Like those are, that's ridiculous output. And what I will say, the caveat there is that he is playing like a very, he's, he's almost not a fullback anymore. He's, he's, he's almost very much like a left midfielder yeah. in a lot of the passes of play. And I mean, so I would call him he's, a he's, wing back, and pretty much, pretty much the definition of a wing back. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's quite a midfielder, but I wouldn't. I, I agree. He's not. He's not a left back for sure. Yeah. So I think that there's maybe a little bit of, of bias or skew in terms of like you know comparing him to you know Aspilicueta when he was a fullback, but of still, course. it's yeah, ridiculous. He, yeah, he plays in a different way, but he. I mean, I'm considering a fullback still because he still does have full defensive responsibilities on the left side. He has most yeah. of the same defensive responsibilities that a left back would. And yeah. that's that's kind of what I want to talk about um, in the second half. We're getting up to halftime here. I'm really going to try and keep this one under an hour. And, yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a new thing in football where you will have just one wing player tasked with all of the responsibilities for one side. Of the <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I say this is yeah. a new thing. It's wingbacks are not a new position. Wingbacks have been around since a, a long, long time, at least since the '60s. Maybe there are some formations that had them and early years before. But these wingbacks used to be more slanted to kind of being backs. It was more of a five at the back than a three at the back and two wide midfielders or wide wingbacks, whatever you call it. But I think yeah, yeah. more importantly is there were often still wide attackers in front of these wingbacks. And that is something that has kind of gone away over the past few years. I think Antonio Conte has kind of popularized this, I guess, with his hmm. um, 3-5-2 formation that he's used you know, very successfully in a couple different leagues over the past few years and just won the title with Inter using. But the idea yeah. that now we don't need these wingers in front. Now we're just going to have one player kind of on each wing to take care of all the responsibilities. And this has kind of led to, you know, a, a few players taking this opportunity and just exploding in terms of production. Yeah, and I mean, Conte, Conte specifically, as you just mentioned, like Hakimi has, I feel like, really embodied this. Hakimi is a huge one and is probably, you know, I think the the closest thing to Gosens there is in terms of production um, on the other side. He, he's, yeah. His numbers are also excellent, but he's not the only one. Um, Angelino is a player who I did not understand at all when he was at Manchester oh, yeah. City. I thought he was terrible, but neither neither did Pep. <laughs> but you know, in this Leipzig team, he's under he's in a similar system with a very narrow attack in front of him. He has free roam over the left-hand side and he was fantastic this year. Uh Philip Kostic has been doing this sort of thing for years for Eintracht Frankfurt playing huh. with more central attackers. And there's a lot. And it kind of brings the question is like why why is this so hard to stop? Why is it that, you know, when you only have one player on the side of the field, it becomes so hard to defend against? It's maybe even harder to defend against than having a winger and a wing back, which, you know, seems kind of counterintuitive that taking yes. a player would make this more difficult. But we will talk about that for we sure. We will talk because about I think it. that's that's one of the biggest keys in all of this is the seemingly counterintuitive nature of the idea that fewer players in a certain space can actually be beneficial for a side. That's a huge, interesting philosophical question there that 
I think Gosen specifically is kind of spearheading the 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 narrative of like, yeah, no, this might be a really good thing. Yeah. All right. And we will talk about that some more in the second half. All right, folks, welcome back. The goose is still loose. We are going to dive into this. Uh, we've got about 25 minutes to make this happen and get it under an hour. So we're going to be hyper efficient, just like the well-oiled German machine in our approach to tackling this. So, Ooh, Will. I love that. Yeah, great start. Let's let's go ahead and, and begin. So we, we really want to talk now about like why there was no answer for this. And we can talk about this through the lens of like why Portugal specifically didn't have a lens through it, or we can kind of expand it to a broader context. And so yeah. what I guess I want to kind of start off by um, is what I'm going to kind of describe as territorial uncertainty. This is kind of where I want to start the second half. Mm -hmm. um, because in the piece that you mentioned at the very beginning that I wrote about positional play, you can believe in positional play or not believe in its existence or whatever. One of the main things that has arisen from positional play is this idea of the half spaces, right? It's this yeah. intermediate, ambiguous zone between the central zones and the width or the flanks or the channels. And the idea with the half spaces, one of the, one of the main things that makes them so difficult for defenses to cope with is that they typically are these regions between defensive nodes of pressure. And so the idea is like, if you put a player as the attacking team in this half space, which as we discussed in the last episode, like could be say the zone between typically is the zone between the center back and the fullback, then it's a lot less intuitive for those two players to decide like who is supposed to mark that person. Right. And, yeah. and, and so this is kind of speaking like horizontally, like if you put somebody between the, the edge of the field and the center of the field, it's like we typically have central midfielders and wide midfielders, central defenders, wide defenders, central attackers, wide attackers. We, know, we don't have half space players, right? And so it's like if a, if a wide player is going to mark the half space, they're kind of like departing from their typical zone. If the central player is going to mark the half space, they're kind of departing from their typical zone. And so it's like there's all this uncertainty with like, who's supposed to pick up this player? When are they supposed to pick them up? Are there moments in which I have to do it and you have to do it? So on and so forth. And, and so what, what Gozins kind of does in this game, and I think is probably the, the starting point for us in the second half to talk about, is that he kind of takes what the half space role somewhat is and, and, and changes its axis a little bit. Hmm. And so instead of like being in this horizontally ambiguous zone, now vertically, what he did throughout this game that made it very, very difficult for Portugal, amongst other things, obviously, is that he was consistently like between Bernardo Silva, who was the right winger, and Semedo, who was the right back. Yeah. And and the fact of the matter is, this like no man's land meant that the same sort of marking decision was forced upon Bernardo and Semedo. And the result of this was not was exactly what a marking decision is supposed to kind of incur, which is confusion, which is uncertainty, which is mistakes that are inevitable when you, it's not just one person that knows their role, but two people that need to somehow communicate who covers what and when. And, and the result was cataclysmic because what ended up happening was neither of them marked him at all. Yeah, and this is kind of the difficulty that arises from, as I mentioned in the first half, this this kind of new thing of only having one player on this wing. Because if there's a winger ahead of uh, Robin Gosens for most of this game, then that decision generally becomes very easy. You know, Shimedo has to deal with the advanced winger and Kensel have to track back and mark Gosens. But Gosens plays as kind of this in-between player who is not 
really able to be fully marked by either of them. And the result of that ended up being that he was kind of marked by neither of them for most of the game. Yeah. And you had mentioned this a little bit in passing too. Maybe you can talk a little more about it. Like it's this idea that if either of them cover him, he's so isolated on that side. If either of them cover him throughout the match, they're basically being a detriment to the rest of the team. Yeah, and that's that's what's really interesting about what Ghost and Sons, because it feels like for most of the game, he's he's not looking at like good positions. In a way, he's actually kind of looking at like bad positions to place himself in. Like he'll, deliberately. Yeah, he'll I mean, the ball will be like on the complete other side of the field. You know, Kimmich will be on it or something. And instead of making a little run inside where he could maybe be more helpful, Ghostens will just still stay completely locked to this touchline. Just standing there. And that that is so hard to deal with for someone like Shmedo because if you go out there and mark him, you know, yes, you take away his option then, but also you're taking yourself completely out of the play. You're marking a player who is not going to get the ball probably and is most likely not going to be able to do anything immediately dangerous with it when he can. So, I mean, do you go all that way out and kind of distance yourself from the rest of the team to mark someone who looks like he's not even trying to be a threat? Most of the time you don't. You can't. So I think that it's also, as we had mentioned, in, in some part, a symptom of the system that Portugal had played, right? When you have a four back and the opponent is playing, t you know, technically one attacker, but also these two kind of almost false nines behind them, the challenge becomes when the ball's on the right-hand side of the field and Ki and Kimmich is on it, right? Or he's combining with 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 Kroos or, or, or Gundogan typically is more on that right and Kroos is more like on the left. But the idea is like... Mm -hmm. When Kimmich is all the way over there, Guerrero, who's a left back for Portugal, has to pull up to mark Kimmich so he doesn't drive down the baseline, right? That's yeah. the intuitive thing that you do as a fullback. For sure. When that occurs, now the ball will often, say, come to a player like Muller in the center, right? And so Muller will have the ball, as he did many times in this game. Kai Havertz and Nabry will then make runs in behind. And in order to quell that, you need someone to step on Muller, which the fact of the matter was that Danilo Pereira and, and William Carvalho did not do that consistently enough in this game such that the defensive line could actually stay at bay. And so what ended up happening was they were often caught out. You need Pepe now to come step up or Ruben Gias to come step up, right? Like, mm -hmm. And now you've got 2v2 with a with Semedo, who's now drawn in centrally, and Pepe Orgias, who's trying to track the runs of Nabry and Havertz in behind, which, again, you need at least two defenders to do that. Yeah, because it's, they're it's still not great, and that's with Semedo completely abandoning Gosens and coming inside. Exactly. It's still not even good. Like, like you have these two guys who... I mean, Kai Havertz is very, very intelligent off the ball. Nabry, like has scored a tremendous number of goals for Germany in not that many games. Like... These are threats and you have to mark these threats. And so suddenly what's happened is like with the four back, you kind of need that fullback like Semedo, you kind of need, and as he was clearly instructed to do, you need him to be pulled in because if he's not pulled inside to mark those central balls, like Muller's going to play that pass to Nabry. They play for the same exact club team. They've done that hundreds of times before. And like Kai yeah. Havertz is like, bursting onto the scene he had his initial burst he kind of slowed down a little bit but he's back at it like you need to cover those things and the last thing on your mind is like oh yeah. look at that homeless man on the far <laughs> side of the field that's just camping and it's like and and, and that's yet what, yeah. that's route one for the germans that's like and the that's, exact thing that they're looking for in this game that's what gosens is so good at doing he's so good at not seeming like a threat 
until the rest of the game. Because like you said, yeah, the focus is not going to be on him. You know, it's not going to be on the guy who's just standing out, looking like he's not even interested in the game on the touchline at the completely other side of the field. It's going to be the immediate threats in the center of the box. These great attackers. And then Gosens just waits and waits. And, you know, when everyone's finally forgotten about him, he finally makes his move. And, you know, it's, it's devastating. I, I don't know what you can do. Because like you said, Schmado has no option in this game. You know, I... I I kind of criticized Schmido the first time I was watching this through. I know a lot of people online were saying a lot oh, of bad yeah. stuff about Schmido after this game, but it's like, what can he really do? And there's not much. You know, I, I think with the formation that Portugal started with, you know, the responsibility for defending Gosens had to go to someone else. But the I question mean, is then, who who is that? Who could right, have done this against him? And so the question then becomes, okay, let's say hypothetically you have Bernardo Silva that's tracking back. First and foremost, that's not a defensive matchup that I enjoy. Maybe it means that Gozens can't hit the ball first time, which could be all you need to quell his kind of threat. But the very nature of Portugal in this match was like they were very dependent on these counterattacking moves. And Bernardo Silva is the type of guy that can drift kind of centrally in a counterattack, pick up the ball, and spearhead that type of play, where Yata might be running in from the far side, Ronaldo might do some hold-up play and then dart in behind. But like... Bernardo. Yeah, and, and the, I mean, the goal that Portugal did score in this match, the one they scored uh, from open play in the first half, was from exactly that. It was from Bernardo Silva picking up the ball in advanced position on the counterattack, quickly finding Jota, and then a square square across to Ronaldo. And if if you know if Silva is back marking Gosens, then that goal probably doesn't happen. So that's a tough sacrifice to make. And and I mean the question, I think it's hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Like people will look at this game and be like, oh well, you know, he only created one, and like he let in effectively four, whatever the final score yeah. was. But it's a difficult argument to make too, because in another match, like we have to talk about the fact that Gosens also had a bit of good fortune, where he hit every single pass, every single shot, every header perfectly. Perfect. In this game. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's part of the reason this was so unstoppable is that Gosens is a very good player who had one of the best games of his career, you know, and. I, I don't think that Portugal defended very well. And I think on pretty much any day that this game was played, they probably would have led in, you know, one, maybe two goals created by Gosens, but four and one that was disallowed. I mean, that's that's more than you would normally expect. And I think I mean, part of that does just come down to excellent form from the individual player. There's also two own goals, which I don't know if it's like the first time that's ever happened in the Euros or something. I'm sure it's un, it's 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 a pretty ridiculous thing. Like, well, I, I don't even think that was that much of a coincidence. That's something I may want to talk about a bit later. But I think uh, Robin Gosens is a very big reason why we saw two own goals for the first time in a game. Yes. And I, I don't think it's coincidence that that happened in the game that he was in. Well, I think that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I can certainly see kind of where you're going with that. I, I think one, one of the things that maybe would be interesting to discuss, we're talking a little bit about this whole like deliberately positioning yourself in no man's land, not so similar to the half space in the sense that the half space is like directly threatening goal has a tremendous like viewing angle for passing and dribbling and advancing the ball closer to the goal or shooting even from, from, from the half space, which is like certainly a higher XG option than shooting from the flank where Gosens is. But what's, what's kind of fascinating. is like these areas of the field are like legitimately undesirable Yeah, because as you play, the, the the boundaries of the field don't stay consistent. Like, like you paint the the lines on the field because you have to, and because you play inside of them, and there are rules when the ball goes out. But throughout the f- course of the match, the field, quote unquote, shrinks. Right? It effectively becomes smaller. You play in a smaller environment, then maybe it expands, then it shrinks. The people that are 
like hyper relevant to the play trade off. Maybe you have a certain situation where it's three v two, and then it transitions to a you know a seven v eight possession game in a larger field in the middle. Things mm-hmm. change, but almost always, when if you were to draw those kind of like artificial lines that are like okay, this is like the relevant area that we're talking about in this sequence of play, Gosens isn't inside of that, and. Nope. And so what's kind of interesting about this, I think I, I alluded to this in the, in, the, in the first half, but is this idea of magnetism, right? Magnetism is a hugely interesting kind of um, notion in football. This, as I mentioned earlier, like this idea that like you can attract defensive presence, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that what's, what's, what's kind of intriguing about this, like what has come from these notions of magnetism and gravity is this idea of, of the mechanics of pinning the opposition. So... The idea with pinning is like if you are an attacker and you put yourself somewhere and you have this magnetic effect on a defender, you might be able to pin their back line to a certain kind of area or to a certain depth by virtue of your presence being in there, right? If you think about like if you have a striker that's a lone striker that plays between two center backs, one really advantageous thing that I like to talk about a lot is like if you're able to pin two players with one, you've created a massive advantage. So like if you have a central striker who needs so much defensive like you know support that two mm-hmm. central defenders cannot leave their post because he's there because if one of them goes he'll go in behind or he'll win a header then you've pinned those players and so what tends yeah. to happen you mentioned a, you had a really good comment in the first half what tends to happen is when you play like a 4-3-3 the wide players those wingers tend to pin the fullbacks and stretch them outwards yes right and, and they tend to kind of like, they say, okay, well, the fullback can't be too central because I'm going to get the ball and I'm really good at dribbling. So like now I'm going to be running at you at full speed while you're trying to track back. The, you know, the, the central striker will pin the center racks because if one of them steps too high, then he's in behind, right? When you don't have that and you don't have this idea of pinning, which has become super popular and like, you know, yeah, you pin. So you imagine a piece of cloth, like you would put little tacks in it to pin it on a corkboard. You stretch it out, you pin it and you kind of stretch it and maximize the space. This is almost like a countercultural different perspective where it's almost like we don't want the pinning. We actually mm-hmm. want the cloth to get super bunched up on the other side. We don't want attack to be stuck where Gozens is. And then we want to suddenly move the ball there without the pinning effect, without having stretched them. We let them compact themselves, but compact themselves to the left or to the right of the field. In this case, it was, you know, to Portugal's left, to Germany's right. And then take advantage of the real estate that's opened up on yeah. the left. It's uh, it's scary. You know, I, I've always thought that teams should be trying to take as much advantage as possible of the fact that, you know, like you said, you know, with this idea of pinning, like attackers can, in some sense, kind of control where the defenders have to be. You know, oh, yeah. The, defending is at its core a reactive game. You can't just go out and be like, oh, I, I want to play in these positions today as a defender. You know, you have to base that off of where the attackers are going to be against you. And, you know, when, when you kind of just leave someone out of that whole equation like Gosens and try and make him not a huge part of the attacking buildup and just kind of hope that they forget about him, then that, that's tough to deal with defensively because they have so many other fires they need to put out all over the field that this guy is going to be their last thing on their minds most of the time. And it seemed like he was the last thing on their minds even after, you know, he had created two, three goals against them. They didn't really shift it. And I think one, one important thing about this, too, is to, to make this work really well and to have a player who kind of just, I don't know, I guess hides during a lot of the buildup and tries to make it seem like he's not a threat, the rest of your team is have, has to be very, very good. You know, in yeah. this formation, you have to have two excellent center midfielders, like Gundogan and Kroos, 
um, you know, are able to control that and maybe make up for Gosens not being as involved. You know, a team that doesn't have that kind of talent, that kind of quality might not be able to run this kind of system as effectively. I think having a player like Gosens does sacrifice a lot in the kind of possession phase of the play. And it's par- perhaps part of the reason why Kimmich was forced out wide, because if you think about it, having a player with his long ball distribution ability was utterly critical to being able to play that pass so quickly that Portugal yeah. wasn't able to anticipate it at all. They weren't, Sumedo was never able to, there was not a moment in that game where Sumedo was like, oh, they're about to switch it. I'm going to kind of drift out here and mark this ball, try to even contest for the header. We're talking like instantaneous, every single time the ball was switched across the field by Kimmich, a lot of the time, like, or, or Mueller, whomever, Semedo is legitimately moving in the direction towards the ball and then has yeah. to switch course. And so he yeah. never even, like, vies to contest for the ball aerially. It's just always dropping at Gozen's feet, at his head, at his chest, what have you. And part of that is facilitated by having somebody who can literally play a pinpoint pass on the other side of the field. And maybe you don't have Kimmich's presence in defensive midfield, but that is the player you need out in that flank. Absolutely. And I mean, he, he played like more of a midfielder this game. I and mean, Gosens ended up playing pretty much like a forward in this match. And Kimmich did right. kind of, you know, Germany's buildup was very unbalanced. They went down the right far more than the left. But because of this, Kimmich was able to kind of play like as a center midfielder for a lot of the game. As this. I mean, Even speaking- though he wasn't in the center of the field, you know, just because the way the buildup was structured, he still kind of played that role. Yeah. I mean, Cruz typically does that from the left half space. He does this thing where he'll take the ball, drift left, faint left cut back right, play this kind of like curling chipped ball over the top. That's yeah. like kind of the crew's signature thing. And, and Kimmich kind of did a similar idea, but instead of kind of playing this in-swinging ball, it was like he was just inver- he was pushed out to the flank and just would drive it. He would just nail a ball far post effectively. Yeah. And, you know, he was able to do this so well. And like you said, those balls are very fast. They don't give the defenders time to recover. And that's kind of where like, this this final element of Gosen's play that I really like that I kind of handed the first half I want to talk about the way he hits it first time it has just becomes so devastating because the real danger with Gosen's is that he never gives the defenders any time to react you know in many cases as if he gets the ball it's already over he, he never yeah. takes a touch and gives you time yeah. to recover your positioning you know if you leave him in space and the ball gets to him that's it and that's why I was saying it's not a surprise that these two own goals came in a game with him playing because that's just what he does. That first one, you know, he, he doesn't take a touch and slow things down and give the defenders time to kind of reset the position. He just smacks it into the thing while everyone is still scrambling, while everyone's turning around, looking over their shoulders, seeing what happens. And this own goal, it's not a bad own goal. Neither of them were. They were just at such high pace. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Well, and so what's interesting is that that high pace is further augmented by the fact that he has so much space around him, right? One of these things with gravity and magnetism is that sometimes, you know, when a player is in a certain area and they're close to you, then you feel like this kind of compulsion to go mark them. But if you see a player that is threatening, that is far away, but in your area where you need to cover, i.e. Semedo, every single time the ball was played in this area, you are just full-on desperate to put some sort of body between you the ball between between the ball and the goal, right? You're, you're yeah. trying to do something, but it is suddenly now it's not just a calm kind of like, all right, defense is shifting from left to right. Now it's like it's frantic by nature because of how far away he is and how much just like how much of an enigma that is when you're like, oh yeah. boy, like we are all on one side of the field. They he is 
absolutely empty. I'm throwing my body. I'm throwing my body. And when you throw your body like that, you score own goals. Yeah. And, and and the, the problem is too, is that what, what I think is, is so dangerous about what Gosens does is that, you know, that, that kind of response of just sprinting out to try and close him down, that can be effective if Gosens takes a touch, you right? Because then you're close to defend him. But Gosens never takes a touch. So what you're doing as a defender then is you're just moving yourself closer to him. You're still not close enough to actually block what he's going to do. But often you, you've moved away from the guy you were marking and left a bit of space in the box. And maybe Ruben Diaz then has to come over and cover that. Okay, right, so this is interesting because because that goal specifically, I really really enjoyed that goal where where Kai, where Diaz scores the own goal where it was kind of Kai Havertz, not really. Because what yeah. ends up happening is exactly what you're saying, right? So Mado is like, uh oh, like he's like, I have to deal with this now. Like he, this yeah. guy is receiving the ball, he's but, wide but he open. He can't he's deal with it. It's already too late. There's an open lane to the goal, right? So Tomato yeah. goes immediately to cut down the the like he tr- he tries to cut him down, you know. What's really, really interesting about the movement between Havertz and Gnabry, and I really appreciate it in this in this specific sequence, Gnabry actually pulls back for the cutback because one option Gosen certainly has is to take this high ball, you know, be like, oh, I'm going to fizz this across the box and actually lay it off negative diagonally for some sort of volley or some sort of like, you know, that's the Jordi Alba to Messi special right there, right? And so go so or, or Gnabry pulls off for what is basically a very legitimate pass. And Pepe is almost the one of the problems with being a good defender and actually being able to perceive things like this is that then attackers can use them to your disadvantage and and <laughs> things that maybe a, a bad defender wouldn't pick up on a good defender would. So Pepe, with all of with yeah. his years of experience and instincts, Pepe steps up to kind of mark the the drag back to Nabry, which maybe is a trauma from his days playing against Barcelona when that was literally one of our absolutely favorite like roots of play, right? Yeah. So 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 Pepe steps up to Nabry. Havertz now notices this, and then Havertz darts into the space behind Pepe. And so now Pepe, who was like in pole position to clear the ball when this ball eventually was played in by Gosens, has now marked Nabry because the defensive midfielders are nowhere to be found. They're not marking, you know, they're not marking Nabry and like covering that shot. The center back steps opens up this huge cavity behind him, goes and slots the ball into that space, and Havertz just has to run full speed at it, and no matter what happens, whether he touches it, whether Ruben Gias touches it, it doesn't matter, because that's that Bermuda Triangle. That's where that's that space where any contact, as a defender, it's a absolute torrid nightmare every yep. time the ball goes in there. It's tough. It's It seems almost impossible to deal with, and I guess we can do this to finish. I mean... Like you said, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I have had you know a few days now to think of a way that Portugal could have stopped this in this game. And I hate to say it, but I've kind of come up empty. I mean, there's there's a couple things I can think of that may have helped. I think if uh, one idea I had, if Joao Cancelo was healthy, sadly he wasn't, but playing him as kind of a you know more defensive right winger compared to Bernardo Silva, which is a role he has taken up at times this season with Man City and tasking him with a bit more of taking care of Gosens. Maybe that helps a little bit, but maybe it doesn't. Um, another idea, what Portugal seemed to try to be doing in the second half, they sent Renato Sanchez on and yeah, had him yeah. kind of track back and try and cover Ghost and spin more. But again, that's that's something that's almost impossible to do. If you're asking someone who's supposed to be a center midfielder and supposed to be involved in the, that kind of period of the game to just be standing out on what is your right defensive flank completely uninvolved. I mean, because at that point, what you're doing is you're just doing a low block back five. 
right? Yeah. Like, like, think about it. The reason that, that these players are in the midfield is because clearly Portugal assumed that the threat was going to come from combination play between Muller and Kimmich drifting inwards and Gundogan darting forwards and Cruz lying back, right? And yeah. so you put these two defensive midfielders in there to kind of rough up those players and engage with them. Yet... Kroos and, and Gundogan were not that involved moving forward. They kind yeah. of withdrew a little bit. And so then it gave these Portuguese center defense, these sixes kind of like this, it's again, it's this ambiguity thing. It's like, do I yeah. mark Kroos and Gundogan when they're like far, like high up the field? Uh, do I mark Kimmich in, in, the, in the wing? Do I have to actually drop back and fill in at fullback? It's it's yeah. it's a confusing scenario, and it's really hard. And the default is usually going to be, you know, in those kind of confusing scenarios, to not completely abandon your position and go mark right. this guy who's standing thirty yards away. It's going to be okay. Tony Cross is open right there. Maybe I should go stand near him or something. And it comes back to the fact that that Gosens on paper is not remotely the guy that you see and you tremor when you see the name like you see thomas muller and you're thinking i gotta make sure i'm on that guy because he's the space interpreter and he's gonna ruin me and you see serge gnabry and his goal scoring record and the fact that suddenly now he's in the middle yeah i'm a little worried about that kai havertz is on a tear at the moment he's a young guy physical like he's been you know tweaked from his days with lampard now moving into tuchel like that's yeah. a scary player and so the last guy you're thinking about is the one that does do the most damage. And you mentioned this. I mean, like you have to have a squad that legitimately does that, like somehow prioritizes the least, I don't even want to say this, but like the least important player, you know, yeah. like it's this counter intuitive methodology, but for a team like Portugal, that's obviously looking to try to overload and quell the bubbling attack that, was Germany and has been Germany in international tournaments in the past, you can kind of fall prey to that bait and switch to the homeless man. That's got his thumb up and he's hitchhiking on the side of the road out there. Like, yeah, it, you become suddenly super vulnerable to this guy that you've certainly written off as irrelevant as you probably should. Yeah. At least going into this game, at least for sure. I mean, compared to everyone else in that Germany team, I mean, Gosens has no experience, no pedigree whatsoever. He's, you know, he's not a bad player, but out of that Germany starting 11, he's definitely the guy that you'd pick out and be like, oh, okay, well, let's let's see how he does. I'm not quite sure he's going to be great. Everyone else, let him. It, you know what to expect. Yeah, it's like, let him have it. Yeah. Let him have it. Well, he had it. And, and look you know, where we maybe, are now. People, maybe people will start paying more attention to him now. Um, it seemed like Hungary paid a bit more attention to him because uh, what I was going to say is my final suggestion for Portugal, I think it kind of hinted at too, is I think the only way to really stop this is to match systems with the five at the back and have one player to go up, you know, one V one against this. And Hungary did this and they kind of nullified Gosens in this game. He did not get the ball in very advanced positions for most of it. And, you know, Hungary almost were able to pull off an incredible result against Germany. I guess, I mean, a, a draw is still an incredible result for them, but it, it could have been so much better. We talked about this last week, the five back that Chelsea implemented with Rudiger in that system playing that cage fighter half space defensive role i mean that's almost like the recipe that is necessary when you have this width dilemma because then you have yeah. reese james and ben chilwell pinned to the sidelines and that's fine because you have three defenders centrally and you can handle muller one guy stepping to muller like aspilicueta you can handle you know nabry and and uh havertz going in behind like 
what was it like yeah. like Rudiger and and Thiago Silva and Christensen did it's kind of the ideal system here is like you need to kind of match that now the question becomes who do you take off for Portugal it needs I to know. be one of those sixes but well, you probably, can't have probably Bruno Fernandes actually that guy well he's my... had an anonymous tournament so far hasn't he? yeah but I mean that that it's... maybe could have worked but I mean, even then, I, I don't think that's a perfect solution because I think for Gosens, that is the perfect solution because I think the most important way to stop Gosens is just to ensure you have someone close to him at all times in 1v1s that he's not able to just hit first-time balls and maybe try and put some more pressure on him, take advantage of the fact that he's not an elite dribbler. But for some of these players, you know, even if you match it 1v1, that's still a very risky thing to do because you know, for, for most teams' left backs, a, a pure 1v1 matchup against like an Ashraf Hakimi, something like that, that's not a duel you're going to win most of the time. Also, it's like if that ends up happening and you have that 1v1 and, and, and Gosens is nullified out in the flanks, now you've simply matched the opponent's team like for like, which might be better than having him entirely unopposed, right? But, but yeah. Portugal took their chances. They said, you know what? We'll take the superiority locally and we'll leave the inferiority far away. And Germany yeah. said, we'll actually take care of that too because we think that our players are capable of holding the ball when they're down a man on the right-hand yeah. side of the field. And then popping it the other side. So it's almost like if you're going to take the gamble, you have to be so certain that you're going to suffocate them and have players that are maybe more mobile, more capable of closing people down, more along the lines of Renato Sanchez than a guy like Danilo Pereira, who's very much more of like a ball winner, aerially, and so forth. You kind of need that intensity to try to actually overwhelm them or else it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Well, it's uh, it's an interesting problem for international managers to begin solving. It's one that Serie A managers haven't seemed to be able to figure out, and I'm I'm a little bit worried about Gareth Southgate's ability to um, maybe solve this problem. Yeah, but we'll see. We we talked briefly about the fullback selection there. It'll be really really interesting to see what they do and and whether Germany tries to take after the same approach or if they have a different kind of stylistic effort um, in that upcoming game. So I feel like Germany will probably play with the same system, the same kind of thing. But I, I don't know. I, I would love to see England maybe try five at the back with a maybe like a Kyle Walker, Luke Shaw stepping at center back to try and match this, something like that. But I kind of feel it's going to be the same boring four-two-three-one with players out of position that we've seen the first few games. And we'll see if Calvin Phillips and Rice are the ones that start. Are they going uh, to be those? Are they going to be a little more? energetic than Carvalho and 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 Daniel yeah. Pereira. I mean, if you have Phillips and Henderson, maybe they play the role that we're talking about where they can actually fill in. Henderson uh, does have years of experience covering for uh, right backs who are too attacking. So maybe you could use a bit of that knowledge to take care of Gosens too. I guess we'll see what happens. Yep. Uh, until then, I guess we're going to call it here. We didn't quite hit an hour, but we're, we're close. We're we are there. close. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, it's a pleasure as always. I'm looking forward to your uh, upcoming work. We've got some really fun things in the pipeline for both the blog and the podcast coming up soon. So um, thanks for sticking with us through the last uh, week or two or month or so that we've had some scheduling hiccups. Will obviously has had some nice vacation. I, yeah. I've had a lot of effort dumped into one specific piece that I was working on. So we hope to kind of be back with a little bit more consistency now yeah. that... Um, you know, we're still going to be doing some traveling, but hopefully, you know, we'll be able to kind of arrange things and and keep these podcasts coming. I think there's a lot of things that are on the cork board right now for us to talk about. So, yeah, especially if we keep taking this approach of uh, kind of reviewing individual games and 
I'm talking about this stuff. There's going to be plenty more that come up in the next few weeks of these knockout rounds. So for sure, for sure. Well, yeah. my friend, it's good to, it's good to see you. It's good to talk. Um, yeah. Till next time, man. Till next time.